I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. We're talking about breaking through this week, and we have some fascinating guests stopping by. Uh, People like Sashir Zameda from Saturday Night Live, whose comedy career might never have taken off had she not been hit by a car. It made me open up a lot more and made me appreciate people and appreciate time. And and then also I got money, so that was great. (laughs) And we're going to talk to writer Ayelet Waldman who'd suffered from depression for pretty much her entire life, and then she found a breakthrough, microdosing LSD. It jump-started the end of my depression in a way no medication had been able to do. Plus, from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, my buddy Alonzo Bowden stops by. He talks about how he finally broke into stand-up comedy after a conversation at his sobriety support group. And they were like, yeah, you can do this, why not? And I was like, well, if you can do it, I surely can do it. All that... Plus, we've got music from Craig Finn from The Hold Steady. It's going to be an amazing show, so let's get going with it and head over to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, where I was thinking about a very small person who recently had a very big breakthrough. Our theme this hour is breaking through, which is particularly appropriate because there is somebody in the news who has broken through in a major way. Her name is Marion Kelly. She is four years old. She lives in South Korea. And she literally broke through the door of her dad's home office (laughs) while he was trying to do a live TV interview for the BBC. And she just straight up strutted into the hearts of millions. This video has been viewed, I think at this point, around 100 million times, and I can't figure out what is the funniest part to me. If it's her sense of self-confidence as she enters the room, if it's her little brother who comes right behind in like an exer-saucer thing for like babies to walk in, or if the funniest part is when their mom figures out what is going on a little too late. 
She enters the room in what I think could only be described as a Kramer-esque fashion from Seinfeld. <laughs> she slides for like six feet entering the room. I feel like the video has gone so, as they say, viral and resonated with so many people. One, because uh, these kids are adorable. And the other, is, the other reason is because uh, if you have ever worked from home <laughs> and had kids, you totally identify with what this family is going through in this moment, regardless of the industry you're in. Like if you have ever muted your part of a conference call so you could change a diaper, you identify with what that family was going through. Even if you don't have kids at home, working from home can get extremely weird at times. I was on a conference call when suddenly I realized that I needed to go to the bathroom <laughs> immediately. And so I did what any self-respecting professional would do. I muted the phone. So I, I do that, I wash up, Everything is fine. A few minutes later, it's my turn to chime in on the conference call, and I go to unmute the line, and it's already unmuted. <laughs> Which was really messing with me. It was one of the scariest moments of my life, maybe top five most terrifying things that's happened to me. Because... Nobody on the call said anything about it. So I couldn't tell if I had just mindlessly unmuted it at some appropriate point, or if I had taken these 11 people on a journey with me, a fantastic voyage, if you will, that they had not bought a ticket for. There's no way for me to know, so obviously I quit that job. Um, because there is no way on earth I was gonna ever look any of those people in the eye in real life again. You know who would not have reacted that way? You know who would have just rolled with it? Four-year-old Marion Kelly of South Korea, who possesses a confidence and swag that I will never have if I live to be a thousand. So hat tip to her at the top of the show. We're talking about breaking through. Let's get your first guest out here, all right? Not that long ago, our next guest, Ayelet Waldman, was at a personal low point. Her depression and mood disorders had become almost unbearable to her and her family, and she tried almost every drug and therapy out there to little avail. Then she had a breakthrough, a breakthrough that arrived at her house in a little vial. It was LSD, and it is illegal. Still, Waldman took micro doses of LSD and had some fascinating results, all of which are detailed in her amazing new book, A Really Good Day. Please welcome Ayelet Waldman to Livewire. Ayelet, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Let's start at the same spot that your book starts, which okay. is the first day that you are about to try this microdose of LSD, what had been going on in your life? What kind of led you up to that point? 
Well, um, I was, I had been incredibly depressed. I have a mood disorder and my mood had just kind of cycled down. None of my treatments were working. None of my therapy was really working. None of the medications, the many dozens and dozens of medications I've been prescribed over the years were working and I was desperate. And I saw this little YouTube video, a man named James Fadiman, who was a psychedelic researcher in the sixties. And he was talking about microdosing and he said, when you microdose, you don't hallucinate, you don't see things, you know, there's no, that Lucy is not in the sky with diamonds, but you just have a really good day. And I hadn't had a really good day in as long as I could remember, and I just became obsessed with this idea of letting myself have a day, one day, one really good day. Uh, you're a lawyer by training, and yeah. you're a very... Uh, analytical person, you were also going to try to be sort of a one-person test case yes. for this microdosing? Right. I was going to be a, a uh, ad hoc psychedelic research subject with the researcher being me. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I did. Uh, I decided I would do a 30-day experiment. I would take a microdose, which is 10 micrograms of LSD, a regular dose that many of you have probably taken in this audience at Burning Man or out on the burn side, actually. That would be like about 100 to 150 micrograms. So I was taking just, like not an acid trip, just sort of an acid errand was what I was doing. <laughs> we have Ayelet Waldman here. Her new book is A Really Good Day about her um, micro-use. Micro-dose, yeah. Micro-dosing micro and micro-use of LSD right. as a way to try to address depression and, and other mood disorders that you were dealing with. Um, I guess once you make the decision that you want to try this, the real question is where do you even get LSD from? Well, I thought it would be so easy. I live in Berkeley. I thought I would just like walk out in the street and orange sunshine would rain down on my head. But it turns out that the Venn diagram of moms of four who do things like drive carpool and LSD gobblers does not cross. There's yes. no, so, uh, I, so I started asking everybody I knew and asking everybody I knew and everybody just thought I was crazy or a narc. And then, um, <laughs> finally some guy said to me, Oh, you know, I heard this story about this professor who microdoses somewhere in the Bay area and he's really old. He's been doing it for decades. Maybe he has some you know, maybe he has a little extra acid and he's not going to use it because he's probably going to die soon. And I thought, that's not a real thing. That's not going to happen. And so I continued asking virtual strangers for LSD. And then um, I go out to my mailbox one day and I open up my mailbox and amidst my, I don't know, Victoria's Secret circulars and my utility bill, uh, I see this little brown paper package with the return address, Lewis Carroll. And in the for, package... For the non-readers, the person who wrote <laughs> Through the Looking Glass, the Alice yeah, in Wonderland Alice story. Alice in Wonderland. And I open up the package, and there's a poem and a little note and a little cobalt blue bottle. Tiny little bottle with a tiny little dropper. So the person never identified themselves. I have no idea who Lewis Carroll is. I don't know if he's a professor. I, I, but, you know, I didn't just drink it. Like, I'm not an idiot. I didn't just be like, oh, that came in the mail. Glug, glug, glug. I, uh, I tested it. I ordered an LSD testing kit. So then I did it for a month. Okay. Uh, what was the uh, feeling that you had 
the first time you took one of these micro doses of LSD. Okay, so I should say before that I've never tripped in my life. I once took some mushrooms that somebody said were magic mushrooms, but all I did was like sit on a tire swing, so they were probably shiitakes dipped in coarse manure. <laughs> but so I didn't, I was convinced, I, I, even though I knew that I wasn't supposed to have any perceptual changes, I was convinced I was going to start tripping, so I was really nervous. But then nothing happened. And so I was like, all right, I better go to work. So I sat down to do my work, and I looked out of my window, and it was springtime, and my dogwood tree was in bloom. And I had this thought, which is, oh, the dogwood's in bloom. It's so pretty. It's just, it wasn't like it was the blossoms weren't taking flight or anything. It was just like I hadn't noticed anything pretty in a long time. And suddenly I was able to see something beautiful and it was incredible. And it really did, it jump-started the end of my depression in a way no medication had been able to do. We have Ayelet Waldman here. Her new book is A Really Good Day. It uh, details uh, her experience with microdosing LSD to try to uh, deal with some depression issues and, and mood disorders that were going on. Uh, you had a, 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 a pretty positive response day one, or at least right. you felt a way that you hadn't felt in a long time. But then you write in the book that day two was kind of rough, right? You know, the protocol is you do it one day and then you don't do it for two and then you do it on the fourth day. And um, it wasn't like everything was perfect. It really wasn't. It just allowed me a little relief from the extent of my depression. I mean, it allowed, when you're depressed, you feel like you're never going to be happy again. You don't even, the concept of happiness seems like something other people are allowed, but not you. And as soon as I was, even when I was in a crappy mood, um, when I took the microdose, I still understood that there was, it was a possible that I would one day feel like maybe tomorrow feel better. And that's what depression robs you of is the possibility of relief. And that felt different then when you were taking other like serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors and things like that, more conventional drugs meant to address this? When my meds were working, they worked in a very similar way. I felt a, a similar relief. The problem is that there are all these side effects. You know, there's sexual side effects, there are weight gain and things like that that I didn't experience with the microdosing. And also I was at a place where I had, my meds had just stopped working. My, my, my brain, you know, people metabolize SSRIs in different ways and for whatever reason, my body just wasn't responding to it. Um, and there's this other effect of the microdosing, which is that it makes it really easy for you to focus like you sit down and your work comes really easily, almost effortlessly. You drop into that state of flow, which is that state where you, you don't even notice time passing. You really love what you're doing. I mean, it happens to everyone, but for writers, it's really exhilarating. And I was able much more easily during that month to drop into flow. And then you have sort of a chicken and the egg thing. Like, I feel so much better. Do I feel better because I'm working really well or do I feel better and that's why I'm working really well? But it was, it was all good. A lot of people who hear this interview who have dealt with depression or know someone who has are going to hear this and think, I got to get me some LSD. Wait, so it's illegal. It is illegal. It's illegal. It's, it's a Schedule One drug. I... Attorney General Sessions, do not condone the use of illegal drugs, sir. Um, my, my point in writing this book is we need research. 
You know, there's tremendous amount of research on psychedelic drugs and how useful they are in combating depression. And we need to study not just large doses of psychedelic drugs, which we were just beginning to do before this recent election, but we also need to study microdoses. There's no real reason that LSD, say, is something we're not allowed to research, we can't prescribe, and, you know, Zoloft is something that's just fine to take. I mean, when you think of the sort of long-term effects on a person... Thank you. Especially since LSD in particular has been um, inversely correlated with suicidality. So people who have taken LSD are less likely to commit suicide than similarly situated people. That doesn't mean like causation necessarily. It doesn't mean run out and take LSD because it'll keep you from feeling suicidal. It just means there's something worth studying here. Why did it end up as a Schedule One drug? This is probably a long answer, but can you give us the yeah. abbreviated version of how LSD, something that you write in your book, has to some degree, a lot of benign qualities to it. There's no evidence of anyone ever dying from ODing on LSD in terms of the chemical in their body, things like that. How did it end up on this very serious list of Schedule One narcotics? Timothy Leary and the Vietnam War, in short. So basically, back at the turn of the last century, there were no prohibitions against using opioids, against you know taking um, mescaline, whatever you wanted to do to your own brain, you were allowed to do. And we began this kind of crusade against drugs. And it's never really been a crusade against drugs. It's been a crusade against people. So, and primarily black and brown people. So marijuana was made criminal and because it was associated with Mexican Americans. And we were told that marijuana made them sex crazed Mexican rapists. And Thank God nobody talks that way anymore. Yeah, isn't that a relief? And similarly, LSD got was associated with with the anti-war movement, with hippies, and when the government and when middle-class white parents saw their kids dropping out of college and protesting the war, and even more horrifyingly, um, uniting with the civil rights movement and, and having a single purpose with that protest movement, it became terrifying, terrifying to the government, terrifying to middle America, middle white America, and that's what led to the criminalization. We have Ayala Waldman here. Her new book is A Really Good Day about her experience microdosing LSD. Uh, when you told your friends and your family that this is something you were trying, was their reaction different than if you were to just tell them, oh, I changed my Lexapro prescription or something? You know, weirdly, not so much. I mean, I thought there would be, I thought people would be outraged. My parents were incredibly supportive, which was very strange. Um, but I think they just wanted me to feel better. You know, when your kid is mentally ill, all you want is for them to feel better. And the, to, to be a parent of a person with a mental illness, you're always afraid of the worst. And, the, and that I had found something that was making me feel better just made them happy. They're also happy I stopped, right? I mean, I did this one-month experiment. They're worried about me stopping because they don't want me to get suicidally depressed again, but they also don't want me to get arrested and go to jail. Okay, but so to that point, I feel like if I would have your experience of sort of emotional agony and then something made it feel even a little bit better, I would never stop doing it, but you did it for a month and then you stopped. Are you that afraid of getting arrested? No, it's not so much that. It's that, you know, in a very real way, this book is a book about white privilege because what I feel is you don't, you can't just walk around in this um, envelope of white privilege and not take a stand and, for what you think is right. And I think the war on drugs is a debacle. And thank you. But I, I think that it is incumbent on those of us who care about issues, issues like the war on drugs, issues like mass incarceration, 
those of us who have the luxury of this kind of privilege have to take that stand. So that's what I did. And, and the fact is that actually makes me feel good. I'm not some kind of saint. It makes me feel good. I yell at Waldman. Her book is A Really Good Day. Thanks for coming on Livewire. Thank you so much. This week, we'd like to say a special thank you to some of our Livewire members, Amy Thompson and John Blandon from Portland, Oregon. It is only through support from members like Amy and John that the Livewire world keeps on a spinning. So thank you so much. Hey, if you're going to be in Portland on April 6th, come by and see us for a taping of Livewire right here at the Alberta Rose Theater. Our guests will be writer and producer Dan Harmon, performer Lauren Weedman, and from Fruit Bats, Eric Johnson. That's April 6th here at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can head over to livewireradio.org for more information and to get your tickets. Our next guest was an aviation mechanic who worked on the Stealth Bomber Project when he realized his true calling was actually stand-up comedy. Well, that, and he also had been laid off from the Jet Project, so that was kind of a sign, too. He took a stand-up class and then really broke through when he won the third season of the hit NBC show, Last Comic Standing. His new Showtime special, Historically Incorrect, is out now. Please welcome my pal Alonzo Bowden to Livewire. Nice. Nice. I, I see America because I travel. I, I was recently in Burlington, Vermont, and, and it was like now I completely understand Bernie Sanders. <laughs> because Burlington, Vermont is like the perfect little white small town. Like if Hollywood was making a show about a small town, they would have built Burlington, Vermont. It's a beautiful town full of ultra-liberal, nice white people. It's like walking around a giant Whole Foods. <laughs> a cop waved at me. I'm, I'm not equipped for that, you know what I'm saying? Like, the cop waved at me, I'm like, I didn't do nothing. He's like, no, I'm just saying hi. I'm like, don't do that to me, man. I'm on edge, I don't need that. Uh, you know, I, listen, I love my country. And, you know, we talk about the whole Trump election, you know, election day, which I like to refer to as the night of the incident. <laughs> but I'll say this about this. I'm surprised, but not shocked. You know what I'm saying? Because, I, again, I see the country. We have been dropping into a level of crazy. Like, this didn't just happen. You know what I'm saying? There's been a lot of stupid going on. I was in North Carolina. I was in North Carolina last April doing a show. I get there, first thing they ask me about is the transgender bathroom law. What do you think of the transgender bathroom? How do you feel about transgender bathroom? What do you think? I was like, I will have to have solved every other problem in my life <laughs> before I have time to worry about where transgender people go to the bathroom. How angry are you? What day do you wake up? There better not be a transsexual in my bathroom. Really? That's your problem? Because I'm going to tell you, as long as you are not peeing on my foot, 
then you do what you got to do. I can't. And also, thank you. Just different types of crazy. In Detroit, I do a show in Detroit for the first responders, for the, for the police and firemen and all that, and they're great people. And, and the chief of police gave a speech and he said, more people in Detroit need to get their concealed carry gun permits so if the terrorists attack, we'll be ready. And I said, I don't know much about terrorists, but I do know Detroit. <laughs> and I'm pretty confident when the terrorists are looking for a city to attack, <laughs> Detroit gonna be mighty low on that list. That's right. You don't just roll up on Detroit. You can't blow up a building in Detroit. People be like, man, that was already like that. You didn't do nothing. It's, everything, everything has changed since the election. I changed, I changed the night of the election. I woke up, I think I woke up Republican because I wanted a gun and I didn't trust the government. I, it's, it's like we have to adjust to a different reality, man. Like, like when Trump came out with the Muslim ban, which wasn't a ban until the court said don't do it, then it became a ban. But, it, but he, Kim Kardashian put out to Instagram and Twitter to her millions of followers, she spoke out against the Muslim travel ban. And then when Trump banned the Times and CNN from the White House, George Bush spoke out for freedom of the press. And I had to sit home and realize that I agree with Kim Kardashian <laughs> and George Bush. <laughs> Try explaining that to your black friends. It just... It just don't work. It, now here, I will give you this, okay? I talk about how crazy this country is, and it is no doubt crazy, but you guys, Oregon, you might be the smartest state we have. You guys, and I, you know, I know this show goes out all over the country, and a lot of people don't realize this, but in 2015, Oregon legalized marijuana and suicide which tells me you guys saw the whole thing coming. <laughs> you guys were sitting around saying, man, we either gonna have to get high or just kill ourselves, because it's about to change out here. Thank you. Uh, Alonzo, you and I go back a ways, but I actually didn't know until this week when I was doing some research on you that you had this whole life as a jet mechanic. Yes, yes, that was my first career. I've always loved things mechanical, and, and a buddy of mine's dad was a mechanic on airplanes, and he was like, you can do this job, you know? So I went to a school called Aviation High School in Long Island City, and I got my licenses to be an airplane mechanic, and Lockheed hired me like right after my senior year of high school, like they basically Lockheed Aircraft, which used to be in Burbank, set up a recruiting thing in the school library and told us, if you graduate from this school, you got a job waiting in California. So I told my dad, I said, listen, I got a job when I'm 18, so between now and then, I'm just gonna kick back and live off of you. 
I assume that went well. It did. My 18th birthday, I received a trunk to pack and a one-way ticket to L.A. <laughs> and the boy became a man. So you have this a whole career doing one kind of thing. When did the notion of stand-up comedy first occur to you as a job? You know, you know what happened, Luke, was I got a job teaching, training new mechanics. And when I got in front of the classroom, I had never been a public speaker, and I loved it. You know, it's something that most people fear. To me, it was the most natural thing in the world. And then I just started making them laugh, talk, telling them stories about when I worked on planes and things we had done. And I just said, you know, I want to give this a shot. I want to, uh, I want to uh, give comedy a shot. Now, I will tell you the other side of it. I've been in recovery. I'm, I got 29 years, right? Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. I never microdosed. I macrodosed. I don't, I don't know anything about that microdosing. Why would you stop? But I went to a recovery in a place called Studio 12. And, and, and Studio 12, the stars went to Betty Ford. The crew went to Studio 12. So I was around people who were in the entertainment business. And I, I had never thought of it. You know, like you said, I'm an airplane mechanic. And they were like, yeah, you can do this. Why not? And I was like, well, if you can do it, I surely can do it. And so I wait, so shot. you're sort of maybe not doing material, but getting advice on your future comedy career while you're basically in rehab? Oh, it was, it was after rehab, but oh. in recovery. I see. No, so while you're going I was to in meetings. rehab, I got advice about rehab. Right. That's what I wanted to make sure, because that seems like a bigger priority <laughs> no, in Luke, that moment than Luke, your budding stand-up career. One more thing I have done wrong. My timing has been off my entire career, because had I left last comic standing and went right into celebrity rehab, Boom, I'd be a star. That, that's, yeah. You can't even make it now without rehab. I went too soon. Yeah, you really played that card too early really in the game did. of life. <laughs> All right, Alonzo, the title of your stand-up special on Showtime is Historically Incorrect. Yes, sir. And, uh, of course, in that special, you talk about historical inaccuracies. We wanted to test, though, just how good you are at this stuff. When right, we're presenting it. it to you, we've got some actual historical facts that seem like they could have been made up, and then we also just have some historical facts that we totally made up. We want to see if you can tell the difference, okay? There was a time when this would have been, you know, would have mattered, but now if I'm wrong, I'm just going to call it an alternative fact and keep on moving. <laughs> I know. All right. Here's the first uh, question. Is this historically correct or historically preposterous? In the 1920s, a team of well-known flappers started an underground dancing fight club that was brought down under prohibition laws after one of the flappers was sent to the hospital with two broken legs. Oh, absolutely true. Yeah, I'd buy that. Historically preposterous. We made really? it up. But that you would be a good movie. Oh. Here's another well, one I for you. I thought those flappers were kind of edgy. <laughs> Historically correct or historically preposterous, Saddam Hussein was once given the key to the city of Detroit, Michigan. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I'm gonna say that that's true because Michigan has a, tr a super large Arab population. It is historically correct. Yeah, that see, is right. I got that, yeah. I that was before he lost his mind, yeah. I'm sure. I hope you're clapping that Alonzo got it right and not that Saddam Hussein got the key to Detroit. He got it in 1980 from then-Mayor Coleman Young after he donated a bunch of money to a local church in Detroit. Yeah. All right. Historically correct or historically preposterous, King Tut's parents were brother and sister. Wow. Um, 
That's a tough one right there. I'm going to say preposterous only because I'm, I'm wondering how would anyone know? That's a great question. Uh, the answer, as I have it here, is that is absolutely correct. How they do they confirmed know it through DNA tests. I don't believe it. <laughs> I mean, because, easy, Sean you know, Spicer. What? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> what DNA did they have to to compare it to? You know what I mean? Like, well, I think uh, King Tut. Well, I'm not a DNA scientist, so I'm going to go ahead and. and a, Go with you on that Thank one, you. under protest. We don't need you putting under the system protest. on trial, Alonzo. Here's another one. Historically correct or historically preposterous. What we now know to be the gerbil was domesticated down from a kangaroo over the course of a hundred-year breeding experiment sponsored by war funds in Australia to create pocket-sized kangaroos to act as spies. Are you asking me or are you asking Kellyanne Conway? <laughs> I think it's preposterous, but Kellyanne probably knows there's a real truth. I so wish I could tell you that that was a real thing, but you were right. It's in fact historically preposterous, not a real thing. All right, one more. Before becoming Pope, Pius II wrote a best-selling erotic book called The Tale of Two Lovers. Historically correct or historically I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to answer that one. The current Pope. No, no. Pope uh, Pius II. Like I know when that was. <laughs> when was he running things, Luke? Uh, 1400s. In the 1400s. Yeah. Before he was Pope, he wrote a romance novel. Best-selling erotic book called The Tale of Two Lovers. In the 1400s, a best-selling book sold eight copies. <laughs> hey. no, no one could read in the 1400s. If you read in the 1400s, that would have made you Pope. They'd be like, wow. <laughs> Look at you reading. You must know Jesus personally. <laughs> You know, this is another one of those where I'm going to say, I don't know how they would know, but since I was wrong last time I used that logic, I'm going to flip and say, yeah, it's true. Historically correct. The book dropped in 1444, bringing you even, I think. Congratulations, Alonzo. Nice round of historically Thank correct Thank or historically preposterous. Alonzo Bowden, check him out on Showtime. And wait, wait, don't tell me. Hey, all this month, we are asking you to tell a friend about a podcast that you think they might love. And so we thought we would ask some of our recent guests on Livewire about the podcasts they're listening to. So we chatted with Ayelet Waldman and Alonzo Bowden, and here's what they came up with. Well, my very favorite podcast is 99% Invisible, which is theoretically a design podcast, but it's really about everything in the world. I absolutely adore Two Dope Queens. They're hilarious. Can't listen to them in front of my children necessarily because they're just embarrassed to hear that kind of stuff with me because they can be very dirty, but I love them. And then because I'm just a basic bitch, I love cereal too. 
uh, Joe Rogan's, who because Joe does these long-form interviews, like a three-hour conversation with one guest, which you think would be way too long, but it works out great. And uh, he's very interesting in what he asks because it may get totally away from what you do, you know. So that that's really good. See how easy that is? Now, granted, Alonzo and Ayelet are professional entertainers, but we know that your recommendation will go over great as well. Here's how you do it. You pick a podcast you love, and then you tell somebody about it. Maybe you do it on social media. Maybe you even do it in real life. And then after you've recommended a podcast, uh, let us know about it on the internet, maybe the Twitter or the Instagram or wherever you like to hang out, and use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. And thanks for spreading the word. Livewire is made possible by Fully, maker of desks, chairs, and things that keep us moving. Fully knows that sitting all day is not the greatest thing for the old body, and that's why we're much better off when we are in motion. So they offer standing desks like the Jarvis and chairs like the Capisco with a wingback design that provides not one, but a variety of healthy sitting options that encourage you to move throughout your day. Learn more at fully.com slash livewire. Our next guest has been a cast member on Saturday Night Live since 2014 when she broke through in a major way. Before landing SNL, Sashir Zameda honed her improv abilities at the legendary Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. But it was her college improv group that she co-founded at the University of Virginia that had what is probably the best improv group name ever. It was called Amuse Bush. I'm gonna let that soak in for a minute. Her new stand-up special, Pizza Mind, premieres March 30th on CISO. Please welcome Sashir Zameda to Livewire. Sashir, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Why did you name your new comedy special, Pizza Mind? I I had the idea for the name before the special. I I just think it's a funny pun because it's like a piece of my mind or piece of mind or pizza mind. <laughs> and I love pizza. Pizza is my favorite uh, thing to eat. And and I was tell my one of my best friends directed the special Chiokinosaur and. I was telling him, I want to call my special pizza mine. And he's like, well, do you have a joke about pizza? And I was like, not yet. <laughs> and then I wrote one. And now the special's done. <laughs> Did you feel good about the pizza joke? I felt great about the pizza joke. Yeah. That so was... you're saying you didn't wedge it in? <laughs> I thought that's the kind of jokes we're doing. That was so cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. Um, is it true uh, that you became very interested in improv when your volleyball team went to a place in Indianapolis called Comedy Sports? Yes, this is true. Um, yeah, my volleyball coach loved short-form improv and loved comedy sports and would take us at the end of the season to go have like a treat for the team. And I saw it and was like, whoa, this is incredible. And and then there was a comedy sports team at my high school, and I auditioned for that, made it, uh, but then I quit because it interfered with my show choir rehearsals, which was my life at the time. Um, but then I ended up doing improv in college, started a moose bouche, and, and kept doing it in, in New York. I found out about this 
comedy sports connection uh, for you from a story in the Indianapolis Star where they interviewed your mother. <laughs> and there were some real eye-opening quotes in there from her, which I'd like to... Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> um, the uh, interviewer uh, was asking your mother about her reaction when you formed a comedy troupe in college. Okay. And your mom's quote was, I thought, okay, she still likes comedy. I didn't know it was going to keep going on with that. Yeah, I, I think it, my mom and my family's general reaction to me getting into comedy was like, what? Because <laughs> they were just like, we didn't know you were funny. Well, that's the next quote. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly the next quote from your mom in this article. The interviewer literally asks her, was Sashir funny as a youngster? And your mom's response was, and I quote here, we didn't think so. <laughs> No, she, uh, she's so supportive um, now. <laughs> now that I make money. But for a while, I think she was just confused. Because there's no one else in my family who performs or, or does comedy. So this is a, a foreign venue for someone to actually like, try to pursue. So when I started doing it, she was like, why and how will you take care of yourself? And I was like, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and then I did. Well, yeah. you figured it out. <laughs> You, you figured it out in New York City um, when you got there and did stuff with Upright Citizens Brigade, but I also read a really fascinating article uh, interview with you. It was like in Time Out, New York. Uh -huh. You were 23. The sense I got is you were literally walking through McCarran Park and they just like oh, stopped you. They did. That's what this is the public eye where they, they do stop a person. They're like, you look cool. And then they interview you. And this is you at age 23. And you, you told this story. I hope it's okay if I'm asking you about it now. Sure. But you were involved in a really serious accident. You were hit by a car and that money is how you were able to kind of like move to New York and support yourself? This is true, yeah. I was hit by a car in college. Um, my whole body was hit. <laughs> um, nothing was broken and that's why I believe I'm an X-Men. And <laughs> but I still have a scar on my arm which was pr pretty gnarly for a minute but I like it now because it reminds me like, you know, not every day's promise. You gotta take advantage of things while you, know, while you can. And yeah, I, a lot changed after that accident. Like my attitude changed, my view of humanity and people changed because after I got, got hit, like I, I was just in a very cynical moment in my life and I, I got into an accident, went to the hospital, couldn't leave my bed for a while, but I got so much love and like positivity from strangers or people I didn't think knew me that well. And it was just so nice to get that and and yeah it, it made me open up a lot more and maybe appreciate people and appreciate time and and then also i got money so that was great <laughs> and then I, yeah I, I used that money to move to new york and it lasted me for a little bit and then eventually i had to get a bunch of really bad jobs to support myself what was it like for you when you got saturday night live that is probably the dream for anybody who does improv what's that feel like yeah, that was the dream. Um, and yeah, it was incredible. I, they knew who I was since like 2011 or something like that. They've seen me perform at UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And so I had done showcases for them for a minute. And the way you audition is like you send in a character reel, which is like five minutes of whatever you want. Then you do a showcase, which is like a live show with an audience. And then Lauren Michaels will be hidden somewhere. 
And then if they like that, they call you into the studio and then you have a test, a screen test in front of a camera. And so I showcased two times and then my third time they called me into the studio and then I got cast. <laughs> what, um, what did you do for that third audition? Because I, uh, I would imagine you used up your strongest stuff for like the first audition, right? I did then use you gotta, a lot like, of Then you got to come up with more well, for the second. Well, I, I kind of grew as a person and a, and a comedian as the years changed. And so what I ended up doing was way different from the first time I auditioned. But I, the last time I auditioned, I, uh, I did a combination of stand-up and characters where I just spoke as myself doing stand-up and then kind of weaved characters within them. So I think it was like around Christmas time and I talked about like, I think Nicki Minaj and Rihanna on, on a song, like doing a Christmas album together or something like that. Because it's like, oh, isn't it funny that everyone does Christmas albums? Like, what would it be like if Rihanna and Nicki Minaj did one? And there, I wrote a little rap and just be like, oh, oh, oh. And just like <laughs> Rihanna saying ho, 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 but in her way. <laughs> uh, right now must be a pretty intense time to be on that show because the ratings are super high. It is seen as extremely relevant to the political climate in this country. Does the energy feel different this season than like when you got there? It does. It really does. It's like electric. Like I, I run into strangers or people I know will say they're so excited to see how we will put our take on something that's happening that week. And it's nice that we get to have that opportunity to talk about things in real time or talk about them immediately. So I'm so glad. I'm so glad to be a part of something that is actually like directly targeting things that people are interested in talking about. And it's nice. Uh, what about a week when you're not able to get like one of your pieces into the show or you have something that gets kind of cut at the last minute? Do you have one that you're like, just want the world of public radio listeners at least to appreciate the majesty of this character or this idea? There, I tried a couple times to do an update piece and, and I tried multiple versions and sketch versions of um, Patti LaBelle selling her pies. <laughs> she has a restaurant, right? She has like a cooking line. She has like barbecue sauce and different recipes and, and pies that sell out every year at Walmart. I'm like I'm, I'm plugging her pies for some reason. I'm not getting paid for this, but. <laughs> Patti LaBelle is one of the main underwriters of this show. So that's actually, that's perfectly on brand for yeah. us. So Shira Zameda, everybody, her new special, Pizza Mind is out on March 30th on CISO. This week's show was brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. This is Livewire Radio. Our musical guest this hour, Craig Finn, first broke through to a wide American audience with his band The Hold Steady back in 2004. Pitchfork Magazine calls him a born storyteller who's chosen rock as his medium. His new solo album, We All Want the Same Things, is out now. Please welcome Craig Finn to Livewire. Craig, welcome to Livewire. Hey, thanks for having me. You grew up in Minnesota. True. And you write a lot of songs about people doing things in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> and this public radio show, Livewire, is on in Minnesota, on Minnesota Public Radio. 
So we got a lot of friends back there. Yeah, yeah. And I actually emailed one of my pals. His name is Stu. He lives in St. Cloud. Mm-hmm. And I asked him this week to send me some Minnesota-related questions that I could fire your way. I'd okay. like to get your opinion on, okay? Sure. All right. Did Kent Herbeck pull Ron Gant off the bag in the 1991 World Series? Absolutely not. If you watch it in slow motion, it was a clean play. Ron Gant's momentum carried him over. Kent Herbeck was just there to make the tag. I'm going to believe you on that one. Here's another one. Zen Arcade or Let It Be? He's asking uh, who's Kurdu's Zen Arcade album uh, versus the Replacements Let It Be album, which came out both in 1984. Let It Be is my all-time favorite album, so I have to go with that. All right, speaking of who's Kurdu, there is something I witnessed on TV recently that I feel like no one's talking about, and it's the way that Jeopardy host Alex Trebek pronounces the name of the band who's Kurdu. How is that? There was a category about, about bands. Take a listen to this. Uh, TV themes for 800, please. Punk band Huskadu did a cover of this sitcom's theme. Yeah. <laughs> how is this not a national scandal? That's, that's how he's saying Huskadu. I think he was trying to go like really Scandinavian with it, right? Like, <laughs> he saw the umlau and he was yeah. like, went for it. He went, yeah, he went all the way. Uh, final question, Craig Finn. What song is KQRS playing right now? Uh, it's something by Bob Seger. I'd say Night Moves, probably, yeah. Can I please read the exact text of my friend Stu in St. Cloud sent me? He said, if he says anything other than Bob Seger, he's been living in Brooklyn for too long. I guess you, uh, you're still true to your roots. What song are we going to hear here? Uh, we're going to hear a song I wrote about, um, about Minneapolis. Uh, I returned, I went, I came back, uh, I went to college in Boston and in 1994 I returned and sort of found myself, um, as you do at that age, not really, you know, a little directionless. And I was thinking about that lately and I wrote a song um, called, uh, well, I, the working title was 1994, but when it made the record I changed it to Preludes. Uh, And it's kind of about my year there. It goes like this. Well, the gangsters throw preludes and saw this one we'd called White Tiger. Worth Park had a body. The holiday guy couldn't make change. And the parking lot scene still existed, but not without problems. I came back to St. Paul. Things have progressed and got strange. I got stuck in a snowbank. I was too drunk to drive to Edina. Right there is proof of my faith that God watches us And the North Stars went south and my friends all went out to Seattle Well, I stuck around town, hit the bars and wait for the bus And the guys in Northeast ride bicycles up to the market 
They'll stick to water But licenses They get revoked And the writing on walls And the stalls of the bathroom Says Cindy's so easy But I never met Cindy Besides it might be a joke Fish take to water But licenses They get revoked Bank. I was too drunk to drive to Edina Right there is proof of my faith That God watches us And the North Stars went south And my friends all went out to Seattle I stuck around town Hit the bars Then wait for the bus Down on the trails by the river And this guy jumped out He was waving a pistol I considered my options Decided to do what he said He went through my jacket And found all my packets and matches Lit up a cig and put the kryptonite Over my head I was knocked out down in the mud too heavy to float off to Memphis Cross from the camps, poke me awake with a stick Made coffee over a campfire, I described my attacker Well they patched up my wounds, showed me a place to get sick Yeah, they patched up my wounds, showed me a place to get sick. And I got stuck in a snowbank. God watches us. To the preludes God watches us God watches us That is Craig Finn Right here on Livewire That's the end of our show. Thank you so much to the people who helped make it happen, including our guests, Sashir Zameda, Alonzo Bowden, Ayelet Waldman, and Craig Finn. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Amtrak, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and edits the show. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. Caitlin Kunkel was our writer for this show. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. 
Kyle Woodrow did our house sound and our recording this episode. And a big thanks to Carlson Audio. Our development director is Lauren Masterson, and Laura Harden is our marketing director. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special thanks this week to member Stuart Yaguda from Portland, Oregon. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with a brand new podcast for you on April 16th. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 